Okay, everybody ready? <laughs> We're all nice and full, and we spent the day outside in the sun. It is a perfect recipe for a nap, but you aren't going to do that, right? <laughs> oh, boy. I have been in. Thank you, darling. Okay. <laughs> How's that? Perfect. How's that? Yes. Okay. If I drift by accident, just go like this. Then I'll know what you mean. <laughs> I am really happy to be back to share with you again. And I have been praying that, and Mary Lynn prayed for us earlier, that we could stay awake. So, in the power of the Holy Spirit, we will. If you start to feel that dozing off feeling, feel free to get up, you know, go get yourself something to eat. It's not going to hurt my feelings. I'd rather have you awake walking to get food than asleep in your chair. But if you fall asleep, it's okay. Because I've been there and done that before, too. So. Earlier we got to, um, this morning we got to look at three names or titles for our Heavenly Father God. Elohim, our creator, who embroidered us in our mother's womb and made us with a purpose and a plan. And Yahweh, our covenant-keeping, unchangeable, self-existent, eternal God who is with us and keeps his promises. And Adonai, our Lord and master, who desires and asks for our faithfulness. And now we get to turn to session two and look at the the second person of the Trinity, our beloved and beautiful Savior. So would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, oh Lord, we are so grateful to you. Triune God, that you have sent your Son to redeem us, to save us from our sin to show us how to live, to take on himself the, the sin of all of us so that we might be made clean and be able to be in your presence throughout all eternity. Lord, we thank you so much for that, and we thank you for the day we've had, and we ask for our hearts to be prepared and our ears to be opened now to hear your voice, and to love you more. Thank you, Jesus, for all you've done. In your precious name, we ask these things. Amen. How sweet the name of Jesus sounds in a believer's ears. It soothes his sorrows, heals his wounds, and drives away his fears. It makes the wounded spirit whole and calms the troubled breast. Tis manna to the hungry soul and to the weary rest. Dear name, the rock on which I build, my shield and hiding place, my never-failing treasury filled with boundless stores of grace. Jesus, my shepherd, husband, friend, my prophet, priest, king, my Lord, my life, my way, my end, accept the praise I bring. Weak is the effort of my heart, and cold my warmest thought. But when I see thee as thou art, I'll praise thee 
as I ought. Till then I would thy love proclaim with every fleeting breath, and may the music of thy name refresh my soul in death. Fairest Lord Jesus, ruler of all nature, O thou of God and man the Son, thee will I cherish, thee will I honor, thou my soul's glory, joy, and crown. Beautiful Savior, Lord of all the nations, Son of God and Son of Man, glory and honor, praise, adoration, now and forevermore be thine. I hope you recognized all those different names and titles of our Savior, Jesus. In all of human history, the most titled individual that has ever lived is Jesus of Nazareth. Cruden's Concordance, which was first published in 1737 and continuously in print ever since, has listed 198 different names and titles of Jesus in the Bible. The name that is used the most often in the Bible for Jesus is Christ. That is not his last name. But we often, I think a lot of people do think that way, Jesus Christ, but that's not it. Christ, Christos, in Greek, in the New Testament, it means anointed one. And Messiah, in the Old Testament Hebrew, also means anointed one. In the Old Testament, anointing was usually done by pouring sacred oil on the head of a person who was set apart by God for a specific divinely ordained task. St. Augustine has a quote about the Bible. The new is in the old concealed. The old is in the new revealed. And that is so true. Many scholars say we should read our Bibles backwards because all throughout the Old Testament there is a thread of hints. We call them the prophecies. This thread of hints of the coming one, the anointed one who would fulfill that role of prophet, priest, and king. That divine, those set apart divine tasks. And the first hint we all know, or at least we shouldn't have said that because some may not know, but the first hint came on the same, at the same time as God talking to Adam and Eve after they had sinned. When, when God said, I will put, he said this to the serpent, and I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. There was that first hint of there's someone coming, someone anointed, Messiah, Christ, the anointed one, set apart for this divinely appointed task. One would come to crush the evil one and to reverse the curse of sin. And, and God, like I said, called, basically there were three divinely appointed tasks, prophet, priest, and king. And they all pointed to Messiah. So we're going to begin by talking about Christ as our prophet. Prophets were anointed or set apart by God for their work in boldly speaking the word of God to his people. Often in warning them to repent from their sin and turn back to their holy Lord. 
A prophet's primary function in the Old Testament was to serve as God's representative or ambassador by communicating God's word to his people, most often in a time of crisis. True prophets never spoke on their own authority or shared their personal opinions, but rather delivered the message God himself gave them. When God was speaking to Moses in Deuteronomy 18, 18, he said, I will raise up for them, Israel, a prophet like you from among their fellow Israelites, and I will put my words in his mouth. He will tell them everything I command him. I myself will call to account anyone who does not listen to my words that the prophet speaks in my name. John 1, 1, in the beginning was the word. And the word was with God, and the word was God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among him, among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus came proclaiming the word of God, and he is the word of God. Jesus was faithful and obedient to the Father. He said just what the Father told him. He was steeped in the scriptures. His sinless mind was filled with the word. Can you imagine having a sinless mind? And what that kind of a mind could take in? And Jesus, as he learned the scriptures, he is obviously completely God, but it, he was also completely human, so he had to study. And he was steeped in it. Every answer he gave was based in the scriptures. When he was tempted in the wilderness, he responded to the devil with the word of God. The crowds who heard him were amazed because he taught as one who has authority. John 12, 47 through 50 says this, if anyone hears my words but does not keep them, I do not judge that person. For I did not come to judge the world but to save the world. There is a judge for the one who rejects me and does not accept my words. The very words I have spoken will condemn them at the last day. For I did not speak on my own, but the Father who sent me commanded me to say all that I have spoken. I know that his command leads to eternal life. So whatever I say is just what the Father has told me to say. All those passages that were pointing to this one prophet that would come, and here it is, Jesus is saying, I say only what my father says. John 14, 10 says, The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. John 17, 8, For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. And I love this passage from Hebrews 1. In the past... God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom also he made the universe. The son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word, after he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. Jesus, as the Christ, 
was anointed to serve as the final word of God to all mankind. Oh, ladies, that makes me just love the word of God even more because that's our final word, and Jesus is that final word, and we see him all through the scriptures. I hope you'll spend time in, in your daily life to... Um, I can tell already this is a body that loves the word of God, but that hunting for those hints and threads. Remember that... that um, exchange that Jesus has post-resurrection where he's on the Emmaus road and then when the, he sat down and he opened the scriptures and the, using the books of Moses and the prophets he showed them himself you know he explained it that's what we need to do that work to see him through the Old Testament well the second um, divinely appointed position was a priest in the Old Testament, we see the priests were anointed for their work in the tabernacle or the temple. The high priest was the mediator between the holy God and his sinful people. Now, I don't know if you read through the Bible. I love, love, love it. And I actually love the book of Leviticus. Most people go to Leviticus and they go, oh, man, not Leviticus. Bullgoring, and if it falls into a hole and... But I'll tell you, Leviticus is just full of those hints. And in Leviticus 8, Aaron and his sons are anointed with oil to make them holy, set apart for this task of interceding for the people before God. Then Leviticus 16, it's a very long chapter. I am not going to read it. But it's amazing. It is the, it is the, the explanation of the Day of Atonement. And it... In it, it is just a fascinating read about how first the high priest had to go in and bring the blood of his sacrifice in, and, and they would light incense in front of the curtain to the Holy of Holies, and the smoke would fill that area of the incense, and they would go in and place the blood on the mercy seat for their sin, so that they could go back out and do that for the people of Israel. And then they would have a scapegoat where they would put the sins on that goat and that goat was sent out into the wilderness. I bring that up because that whole chapter, that long chapter, is all pointing to our Savior who took his own blood and saved us, became the scapegoat, became the lamb that was slain, is his blood cleanses us. It's a very good chapter, so circle that to read. Hebrews 9.22 says, Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Hebrews 5.1 says, Every priest is selected from among the people and is appointed to represent the people in matters related to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sin. He is able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and are going astray, since he himself is subject to weakness. This is why he has to offer sacrifices for his own sins as well as for the sins of the people. And no one takes this honor on himself, but he receives it when he, when he receives it when called by God, just as Aaron was. In the same way, Christ did not take on himself the glory of becoming a high priest, but God said to him, "You are my son. 
Today I have become your father. And he says in another place, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. God ordained and anointed Jesus for this task. Hebrews 7, 25 to 26 says, Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. Unlike the other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. Christ, as our mediator and high priest, not only offered the sacrifice once and for all, he is the sacrifice. Hebrews 4, 14 to 16 says, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who was, has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Jesus, the anointed one, the Christ, is our high priest. He died for us as the perfect sacrifice for sin, and he lives to make intercession for us before the Father. Our high priest understands our weaknesses, and he lives to make intercession for us. So you know when you get that awful feeling like, oh, I blew it again, or even right now if you're having to try to hold your eyes open, I get it, and our great high priest gets it too. He lives to make intercession for us. Christ is our king. Kings were the third that were the divinely appointed task. They were anointed for their role as leader. You probably remember back with David and how Samuel went to his house and went through all the brothers and then finally got to David. And um, God taught him a lesson. It wasn't about being the most beautiful or handsome. God looks at, man looks at the outside and God looks at the heart. Well, kings were anointed and they were under God's authority for the purpose of leading the people in the ways of God. Deuteronomy 17 is an amazing chapter. And I don't know if you have read that and you looked at that and thought, wow, what if all the leaders did this? This is the, this, I mean, the Israelites were not supposed to ask for a king, but God knew they would, and he made a provision in the law for that. And he said, Deuteronomy 15, 17, 15 to 20, be sure to appoint over you a king the Lord your God chooses. He must not take many wives, or his heart will be led astray. He must not accumulate large amounts of silver and gold. When he takes the throne of his kingdom, get a load of this. He is to write for himself on a scroll a copy of this law taken from that of the Levitical priests. It is to be with him, and he is to read it all the days of his life so that he may learn to revere the Lord his God and follow carefully all the words of this law and these decrees and not consider himself better than his fellow Israelites and turn from the law to the right or the left. Then he and his descendants will reign a long time 
over his kingdom in Israel. Now you know Saul was the first king of Israel, and he failed to obey. And then Samuel said, you're done, out of here. And he anointed David, and David became the king. And David was called a man after God's own heart. And we all know the story of David and Bathsheba, and we know, we know that David was not perfect, but he kept coming to the Lord, and he loved the Lord, and, he, and, and yet, and yet, he did not have that kingdom that lasts forever. In, um, let's see, uh, I've got to catch up with myself. David was anointed the king, and um, God made a covenant with David. In 2 Samuel 7, 11 to 14, the Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to su succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. Psalm 2 suggests a Davidic king in the historical terms, but also to a future king, that ultimate David king. Psalm 2 says, the kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed. And later, the Lord says, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. But that didn't happen to David, and it didn't happen to Solomon, and it didn't happen to any of the kings. Because that was just another one of the hints in this long line of who Christ, the anointed, would be. The prophet, the priest, and the king. Then in the fullness of time, Jesus came, son of David, anointed one, the Christ, the long-awaited king of kings and lord of lords. And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. This is Luke 4. And as was his custom, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him and he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written in Isaiah 61. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. One little gal was saying, it was a mic drop moment. <laughs> and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him and he began to say, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. The people began to ask, could this be the Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah? They knew the prophecy, for to us a child is born. To us a son is given and the government will be on his shoulders and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the greatness of his government and peace there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. Mary, his mother, had heard it. She was told by Gabriel, he will be great 
and will be called the Son of the Highest, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. But you know, the Lord Jesus did not take on that title lightly. He did not use it of himself. And I, I had not recognized that, except there were a few times when even a demon said, we know you're the Son of God, we know you're Christ. And he silenced them, and I wondered about that. And there was a political idea at the time around the Messiah, the Christ. And at that time, it was so strong that the people would have interpreted that he was saying he was the Davidic king, which he was, but that he was coming to overthrow the Romans. And they didn't understand that that is not what his kingdom would be. In Matthew 16, though, his, he did ask his disciples, who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus did recognize it then, and he said, not recognizing it as aha, he recognized and acknowledged it, I guess is a better word. Jesus acknowledged Simon Peter, and he said, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. Jesus, our Savior, the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one to be our prophet, priest, and king, the last word of God, our intercessor, the king, was a king who had to come and suffer, as it says in Isaiah 53. He was the one that had to come for our redemption. He was the one that did that. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The kingdom was not going to come the way they thought. Hebrews 12.2 says, Looking unto Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus Christ, our King of kings. In John 20.30, it says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the... Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Christ was anointed for the work of redemption for us. His work was to obey the plan of God the Father and pay the debt of our sin through the sacrifice of his blood on the cross. He left heaven and all of its glory to do this for us. He completed this work for us. Everything he has done is for us to believe that he is the Christ, the coming Messiah, who did exactly the Father's will to redeem us. Do we worship our Christ, praising him and thanking him for being that anointed prophet, priest, and king? Do we see him as the final word to us? Through Jesus, our Messiah Christ, we have been given forgiveness of sin, eternal life, and life abundant here and now as we walk every day in the freedom from guilt and shame. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. 
that is just should be our joy every day. The second title for the name of for Jesus, which I was always troubled with. I don't know if you have been troubled about this. Probably not. It's probably just me. But how many times I read Jesus called himself the son of man. I, the son of man. And that bothered me because I thought, can't you be more clear? Why don't you just say, I am the son of God. I am the Messiah. But he didn't. Son of man. And this was a fascinating study. This is Jesus' preferred designation for himself. Son of man. Eighty times in the New Testament. Jesus is identifying himself with mankind. Philippians 2, 4 to 11 says, In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. I really pondered that verse, and I thought, how did that work? And I love this explanation Alistair Beggs gives. Jesus had a greater priority than his uninterrupted glory. And I read that earlier in the first message. The greatest example of selflessness who by his very nature was God. There was never a time when he was not God. He is eternally, truly, totally God. And yet, he did not cling to his prerogative as God because he had a higher priority than his own interrupted glory. And in fulfillment of that priority planned from all eternity, he deliberately and voluntarily set his glory aside. The priority was our redemption, so that we could be born again and live for all eternity in the presence of Jesus. Jesus didn't take off his glory. He had the glory of God in him. He was divine. He added humanness and then set that glory aside. It didn't, it wasn't about his glory. I hope that's making sense to you. Um, as Jesus taught the people, Herod was watching carefully. He was hearing about all that Jesus was doing, and he heard the reports that some wanted to take him and make him king. There was a lot of talk, and I've already referenced this before, but here's when Jesus said, who do people say the Son of Man is? Did you catch that? He's asking, who do they say I am? But he's also telling him, I am the Son of Man. Jesus was fully human. When the title Son of Man was used in the Old Testament, it often meant being human. And Jesus identified with us as fully human. Human body, human mind, human soul. He did not subtract some of his divineness to make room for his humanness. Humanity was added to his divine nature. Humanity in all of its being, but without sin. Jesus is not part of God or one-third of God. Rather, he is fully God, for in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. There's been a lot of controversy over the paradox of the divinity and humanity of Jesus, like big-time arguments over the years. 
J.I. Packer said, remaining what he was, he became what he was not. Christ was not now God minus some elements of his deity, but God plus all that he had made his own by taking manhood to himself. Thus, Jesus did not give up any of his divine attributes at the Incarnation. He remained in full possession of all of them. For if he were ever to give up any of his divine attributes, he would cease being God. Jesus is God forever, and he is man forever. He rose physically from the dead, he ascended into heaven as a man, and he will return physically at his second coming. The Son of Man, as fully God and fully human, enables him to more fully sympathize with us and identify with us. He knows what we're going through. Noel and I were just talking about this earlier. He knows what we're going through because he was once on earth as a man, not because he was just once on earth as a man, but because he continues forever as that same man. Isn't that amazing? Two natures united in one person forever. In his divine nature, okay, get a load of this. In his divine nature, he never experienced hunger or fatigue or sickness or temptation. But in his human nature, he did. We can bring to him all of our struggles and troubles and know that he understands. He he was completely divine and added humanness, but he did not lose his deity. He was still God, which I heard Tim Keller talk about this, and I thought, that is, that is amazing. We have been tempted, and he was tempted in all ways like us and yet without sin. But we have not been tempted like Christ has been tempted because he did not sin he got the full force of all temptation of hell. We are so weak. We fall with just a little shove. We have not stood against that. Our Savior did that for us. When Jesus referred to himself as the Son of Man, he showed solidarity with us. Jesus entered into humanity through the incarnation. He took on flesh and dwelt among us. That is one aspect of the title, Son of Man. This is another aspect of that same title, Son of Man. Jesus identifies himself with the transcendent, majestic, heavenly figure of Daniel 7, who would rule at the right hand of the Father. I don't know if you have read through the book of Daniel. If you want to go to Daniel 7 right now, you can, or you can just listen. Daniel 7, Daniel's had this horrible dream. And I will read this to you. Daniel has a dream in which he sees four great beasts that terrify him. But then the dream takes him straight into the thr throne room of God, which is actually a courtroom. Verse 9. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, the court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. And I'm going to skip a few verses because we aren't, we aren't going to take the time to take the context here of the beasts. But then it says in verse 13, I saw in the night visions, and behold, 
With the clouds of heaven there came one like the Son of Man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. When Jesus calls himself the Son of Man, he is identifying himself with that Son of Man in Daniel 7, the one who was given dominion, glory, and authority. We see this in Matthew 9, 6, and 7 because Jesus says, but I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the paralyzed man, get up, take your mat, and go home. And then the man got up and went home, and when the crowd saw this, they were filled with awe, and they praised God, who had given such authority to man. When Jesus called himself the Son of Man, he's identifying himself with the heavenly figure from the book of Daniel that would come to rule and reign his kingdom that has no end. And we know this to be true from the passages in Mark 13. But in those days, after the tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. And the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in the heaven will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great glory and power. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the end, and the ends of heaven. And in Matthew 26, Jesus was arrested and he stood before the high priest. And the high priest asked him, are you the Christ, the anointed one, the prophet, priest, and king that was foretold, the son of the blessed? And Jesus said, I am, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, what further witnesses do we need? And in Acts 1.10, and while they were gazing into heaven, and as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. The Son of Man, that name, that title of Jesus has become so dear to me as he as he identifies himself with our humanness and at the same time fulfills that prophecy given to Daniel back so many hundreds of years ago of being in the courtroom and being given that throne, our Son of Man, our Savior. Jesus identifies himself as the one who would bring about our redemption by becoming a curse for us. Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on the tree. You know in John 3 where Nicodemus comes and talks to Jesus. And Jesus says, you must be born again. And Nicodemus goes, really? I can't crawl in my mother's womb and be born again. And he tells him, unless you are born of the water and of the spirit, you can't be born again. You can't. Um, be in my kingdom. And then he says, no one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. 
And then he ties it in with this. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That tie-in to the serpent when Israel was griping about the manna in the wilderness and Moses was upset and God was furious and he said, and then he sent the serpents in and the serpents were biting people and people were dying from the snake bite. And God in his mercy told Moses, build a bronze snake, put it on a pole. Anyone that is bitten can look to that bronze snake and be made well. And Jesus, as the Son of Man, said, I have to be raised up. I have to become human like you and be raised up so that when you look to me and believe, you can be saved. In Acts 7, 54 and 56, Stephen has just testified to the salvation in Jesus, and they're about to stone him, and God in his mercy opens up heaven and lets Stephen see this. Now when they had heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Jesus is the Son of Man. What a glorious truth. He identifies with us. He is fully human and yet fully God. And ruling with God is his right at his right hand. Therefore, we have no longer anything we need to fear because he knows us and identifies with us. And our last title for tonight, and thank you for being, being here and listening and trying so hard to stay awake. You're doing great, everybody. You're doing great. Um, Jesus is our good shepherd. Psalm 23. Isn't it just the best? It's so good. It's probably the most familiar and the most quoted passage from the Bible. Whenever I am personally struggling in my life, that is my go-to passage. And I take time to emphasize each word one at a time. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not walk. The, a definite article, only him. The Lord is my shepherd. I loved a book a long time ago, Philip Keller, A Shepherd Looks at Psalm 23. How many of you have read that? Us old timers. <laughs> Girls, you young ones, you should check that one out. I loved that book. He states, now, and, and watch this thing, this thing about the Father, the Son, and the Spirit creeps up even here. Listen. Now the beautiful relationships given to us repeatedly in Scripture between God and man are those of a father to his children and a shepherd to his sheep. These concepts were first conceived in the mind of God our Father. They were made possible and practical through the work of Christ. They are confirmed and made real in me through the agency of the gracious Holy Spirit. Did you hear that? It was right there again. So when the simple though sublime statement is made by a man or a woman, that the Lord is my shepherd. It immediately implies a profound yet practical working relationship between human being and his maker. It links a lump of common clay to divine destiny. 
It means a mere mortal becomes the cherished object of divine diligence. David, inspired by the Holy Spirit, wrote that psalm. David was a shepherd, as you know, and then he was made king and he shepherded his people well. David speaks of God as his shepherd and he boasts about his divine care. But David's rule gave way to Solomon, and Solomon gave way to a succession of horrible kings who were not good shepherds. And the rulers and the religious leaders rebelled against God's law, and though they were warned over and over again by the prophets, God punished his people by sending them into exile. And Ezekiel 34. I'm not going to read the whole chapter, but I am going to read a lot, and I have to. I just have to. So bear with me, (laughs) because it's so good. When you think about our good shepherd, this is what God intended us to have and intended the people of Israel to have in their leader, in their kings, in their priests, in their religious leaders. And this is what they got. Ezekiel 34. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Woe to you, shepherds of Israel, who only take care of yourselves. Kind of goes back to what you were talking about, Donna, about mentoring. Woe to you, shepherds of Israel, who only take care of yourselves. Should not shepherds take care of the flock? You eat the curds, clothe yourselves with the wool, and slaughter the choice animals, but you do not take care of the flock. You've not strengthened the weak, or healed the sick, or bound up the injured. You've not brought back the strays, or searched for the lost. You have ruled them harshly and brutally. So they were scattered, because there was no shepherd. And when they were scattered, they became food for all the wild animals. My sheep wandered all over the mountains and on every high hill. They were scattered over the whole earth, and no one searched or looked for them. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. As surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, because my flock lacks a shepherd and so has been plundered and has become food for all the wild animals, and because my shepherds did not search for my flock but cared for themselves rather than for my flock. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the sovereign Lord says. I am against the shepherds, and I will hold them accountable for my flock. I will remove them from tending the flock so that the shepherds can no longer feed themselves. I will rescue my flock from their mouths, and it will no longer be food for them. For this is what the Sovereign Lord says, I myself will search for my sheep and look after them. As a shepherd looks after his scattered flock when he is with them, So I will look after my sheep. I will rescue them from all the places where they were scattered on a day of clouds and darkness. I myself will tend my sheep and have them lie down, declares the Sovereign Lord. I will search for the lost and bring back the strays. I will bind up the injured and strengthen the weak. But the sleek and the strong I will destroy. I will shepherd the flock with justice. I will save my flock, and they will no longer be plundered. I will judge between one sheep and another, 
I will place over them one shepherd, my servant David. This is Ezekiel, David's long gone. This is the David to come, our Savior. And he will tend them. He will tend them and be their shepherd. I, the Lord, will be their God. And my servant David will be prince among them. I, the Lord, have spoken. Then they will know that I, the Lord their God, am with them. And that they, the Israelites, are my people, declares the sovereign Lord. You are my sheep, the sheep of my pasture. And I am your God, declares the sovereign Lord. God promised a shepherd, a leader, one who would care for his people. He promised himself. And Jesus came and fulfilled every promise. Jesus said in John 10, 11 through 15, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand is not the shepherd and does not own the sheep. So when he sees a wolf coming, he's out of there. Then the wolf attacks the flock and scatters it. The man runs away because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep, and my sheep know me, just as the Father knows me. And I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. Jesus is that shepherd promised in Ezekiel 34. You know, when he was teaching the Pharisees and the teachers, and they were complaining about Jesus. I mean, how many times did they complain because he healed on the Sabbath? Oh, for the, for the love. And this time they were complaining because he welcomes sinners and eats with them in Luke 15. And Jesus told this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and his neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I've found my sheep, my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. 1 Peter 2, 21-25 says, To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he trusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. An overseer was like a general of the army that comes to inspect the troops. Our good shepherd and overseer never takes his eyes off of us. He knows the numbers of hairs on our head. And he searches our hearts and he equips us with everything we need to do what he calls us to do. Guaranteeing that our souls will be preserved and that he will fulfill in us the purposes for which God made us. There is no greater example of love than the cross, where Jesus, our good shepherd, willingly laid down his life for us. 
He suffered death so we would have eternal life. He received the wrath of God so we could receive the forgiveness of God. He became a curse for us so we could be called the children of God. He took upon himself our sins so we could be clothed in his righteousness. You know, when Jesus was in the garden and he was praying, he was not praying in agony over the impending physical death. He was praying in agony for that cup that he would have to take. And that cup was the wrath of God poured out on him for our sin that would separate him, the incarnate one, fully God, from his father. They would be separate. And Jesus, in that moment, in that agony, in that horrible temptation, chose us. He chose us. He did this for you and for me. He took the cup. He fulfilled the plan of the Father to procure our redemption. He's our good shepherd. And from the cross, he called, it is finished. It is finished. The Greek word for it is finished is to die, which is what they wrote over a debt when it was paid, death canceled, paid in full. What can we say? <laughs> That's our savior, our prophet, our priest, our king, the son of man, our good shepherd, the overseer of our souls. I love the old hymn, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross, and I thought that is the word of application for us. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and pour contempt on all my pride. Forbid it, Lord, that I should boast save in the death of Christ my God. All the vain things that charm me most, I sacrifice them to his blood. See from his head his hands, his feet, sorrow and love flow mingled down. Did e'er such love and sorrow meet, or thorns compose so rich a crown? Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were a present far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life my all. You were the word at the beginning, one with God, the Lord Most High. Your hidden glory in creation now revealed in you, our Christ. You didn't want heaven without us. So Jesus, you brought heaven down. My sin was great, your love was greater. What could separate us now? Death could not hold you, the veil tore before you. You silenced the boast of sin and grave. The heavens are roaring, the praise of your glory, for you are raised to life again. You have no rival, you have no equal. Now and forever, God, you reign. Yours is the kingdom, yours is the glory, yours is the name above all names. What a powerful name it is. What a powerful name it is. The name of Jesus Christ, our King, 
What a powerful name it is. Nothing can stand against what a powerful name it is, the name of Jesus, our Christ, the Anointed One, prophet, priest, king, son of man, good shepherd, overseer of our soul, Jesus. Now to the, and now the God of peace that brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you perfect in every good work to do his will, working in you that which is well-pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Please stand and receive Jesus.